This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, where we talk to our friends about the movies we love. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason. As a dad with two toddlers who enjoys throwing his children quite a bit, I was like, you're going to throw out your shoulder for sure. And we welcome the showrunner of HBO Max's Banshee and Warrior, plus Jason's favorite show, C, Jonathan Tropper. At that point, they just said, it, we're all in. We continue our Gina Davis journey as we cover her female action starring role that broke the mold, The Long Kiss Goodnight. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. And now, without further ado, the long kiss goodnight. I totally forgot that we were recording up until uh, you DM me and was like, oh, I'm going to be a couple minutes late. And I was like, I'm definitely going to be a couple minutes late too. But we're all here and it's great. Well, you know, part of the reason for that, Jason, is because we're almost on break. Yes, we're almost on break. We almost this, did it. This episode is going to take us through spring break, ski week. I don't know. Ski what, week. Like whatever you call it. Yeah. President's Day week. Some people call it. Where will you be skiing with your family? We will not be skiing. We are probably doing some kind of local vacation again, maybe like maybe a little trip back up to wine country as we we sometimes mm. like to do. Are you uh, a snowboarder? I'm a skier when okay. I when I engage in the mountain sports. I like to ski. I am a perfectly competent blue skier. Yeah, um, that's a great that's, thing to be. That's all I that's all I'm looking for. I learned how to ski late in life. And since in the last like 10 years, I've probably had like five ski days in my life. My current thing is that I only go skiing when invited by a very rich person who has like a ski in ski out house on a private mountain. That's my, oh, that's, cur- a good- that's the, that's my, that's my current standard. Yeah. That's a is good that way like, to go. <laughs> I want, I want the, I want the skiing to be ski in ski out. I want it to be that like there's n- literally no one at the lift lines because uh-huh. like, like it's just like old rich people who live there uh-huh. like you just <laughs> stroll right up it's just they turn they start spinning the chairs when you walk up right um as you go down there's like Hi, various, mr goldman this, the lift is ready for you there's various what they call the sugar shacks uh uh-huh. scattered about where there's just like a hot giant chocolate. hot chocolate like fireball shots uh like you know soups and whatnot it's just delightful hmm. it's great so that's what i that's what i need hmm. and i i do not right. own that myself so i need to be invited and as i've not been recently um i've not gone skiing maybe we should have certain guests back on the pod and then we can exactly talk about it. yes we need some we need some of our we need some of our well-heeled guests to rejoin <laughs> us and invite us to go skiing well we're going to mexico Oh, that's great. I'm going to try not to hurt myself again in the ocean. I think I can do it this time. I just have to keep my concentration uh, steady. But but we're excited. We've been on a run. You know, our commitment here, even through last week, you recording. Yeah, it'll be a couple of weeks game. back by the time the this Jordan happens. Jordan flu game. Yeah, exactly. When you had strep throat, active strep throat on active the Active strep throat. You and could feel it coming through the your audio. You were Some very of our tired. listeners probably got... <laughs> 
got strep ear just from listening to that episode. Yeah, well, this episode that we're recording way out of order right now um, is the makeup for when we had to cancel and do the emergency watch episode That's because right. the witch captured my voice. That's right. I can't even keep track of like the fucking multiverse of episodes <laughs> that we've had to string together because of illness. So if you right. tell me that's what happened, I believe you. But yeah. I would believe any version of reality at this point. It's definitely hard to keep it uh, keep it straight. But we are so excited about this episode. We have this been waiting months to do this one. And so it pained me mightily when we had to delay it. But tonight, joining us on the show. So one of our very favorite guests of all time on Dune Pod is Greg Yatanis, um, mm -hmm. who has been incredible um, with us, whether it was 12 Monkeys, Terry mm -hmm. Gilliam, or... Raising Arizona or Children of Dune. And he connected us with one of his great friends and his favorite collaborator, longest and most fruitful collaboration, as he described it, is with Jonathan Tropper. And they worked together on Banshee. And then Jonathan went on to do both Warrior and Jason Momoa's C. Jason Momoa's C, most importantly, a, a show that we will continue to proselytize. To Hell yeah. Random guests on the pod. Yes. Uh, people on the street. Uh, it's my purpose in earth. <laughs> Have you heard the good word? Have you heard the good word about C? It's an incredible conversation about all three shows, all of which feature, uh, you know, amazing actor Hoon Lee, uh, mm -hmm. who is phenomenal on all three shows. And, uh, and it is this amazing through line going through three very different stories. Uh, but just incredible, the insights and the all-time history with dune uh which folks will hear in just a minute jonathan's history with dune is incredible mm -hmm. so that is tonight's episode which we'll be getting to in just a few minutes next week speaking of greg yatanis he is back and jason we are taking one of the big ones it's got to be on mount rushmore in terms of science fiction classics of all mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. your favorite film for many years mm -hmm. we are doing terry gilliam's brazil yeah, this is a this is a big one. This is about as big as it gets. Oh it's hard. God. You can't really overstate it. Huge, uh, huge, hugely influential in movie history. Hugely yep. influential on me personally. Mm. Excited for that conversation. It's gonna be really great. I'm gonna restrain myself from getting into it uh, any further at the moment. But just it's gonna be it's gonna be absolutely wild. So. Yep. Stay tuned for that next week. It's going to be incredible. Uh, how about Dune News? Would you like to know more? Dune News. There's no Dune News. It's Vacation Edition. Timmy keeps putting out these ads. Uh, there might, there's probably <laughs> new ones. Probably new Timmy Apple ads. Predict into the future, Jason. This episode won't drop for about three weeks. Will Timmy have an Apple TV Plus he'll show? Have a sh he has to have a show. There has to be a show. Ooh. This can't just be for ads. It's a lot of uh, ads if it's just for ads. Yeah, it's got to be for a show. Eventually, there's got to be a show. Otherwise, it's kind of weird. It's like, Tim sucks. He didn't get a show after all this. <laughs> I love the fact that he's poking fun of himself. Uh, and so that is quite good. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you think? Should we get into this conversation with Jonathan? Let's go. So, Jonathan, I think if you go back to, it was like the first episode of Dune Pod ever, maybe the second one, the earliest bit that we had on the show was the fact that Jason is a total fanatic for the show C. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. And through this podcast, which is ostensibly about Dune, I have recruited legions of people to watch C. 
It is. Uh, it's become. Well, that's. It's become essentially the second thing that this podcast is about. So when you started <laughs> this podcast for Dune, was it for? Was it for the movie Dune? Was it for all things Dune? Because yeah, it was like in anticipation of the film. Yeah. yeah. It was May of 2020, and at the time, we thought Jason thought this would just be a little six-month project, and uh, <laughs> the movie would be coming out in October, um, and instead it got delayed by over a year, and now we're coming up on our three-year anniversary of Dune Pod, so yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and I was like, look, the Denny Villeneuve movie is being delayed. I need some other post-apocalyptic, dystopian <laughs> yeah. fiction about a savior, something about eyes, and yeah. C was there. And it was, it's been fantastic. Coincidentally, I saw Dune on the set of C. Amazing. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, it was, it was, we were back up in production and uh, Jason arranged a screening for us. And um, wow. he, he took like, uh, he took about eight of us to this theater and we all had to sit in different corners of the, of the theater to watch it. It was like, you know, a small private theater, but like, just so that we were following our COVID protocols, but I oh, saw yeah. Dune. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the other good thing about C is that it was like a double a double Dune hit for us because like what we we yeah. largely cover movies that have people who have been in one of the Dune properties, um, yeah. which is how we got connected with Greg uh, Utanus, and yeah, and it was like, oh, this is great. When it got to season two, we're like, this is now solidly in our wheelhouse. We don't have to <laughs> pretend. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it must have been amazing to see that film. And to me, Jason was the biggest standout kind of surprise of the entire movie. Like, I wasn't sure what to think about him as Duncan Idaho. Um, and he was phenomenal. Yeah, I, I thought he was I thought it was great, too, because, you know, Dune is such a heavy piece of science fiction and it's treated with such biblical reverence. And yeah. then to have that one swashbuckling character who smiles and grins and and brings you know, not quite levity to it, but brings a humanity to it that sometimes tends to get lost in, in heavy science fiction because everyone's saying really important things and mm -hmm. explaining all the exposition that needs to be explained in Dune. Then to just have a character who feels a little bit like the Han Solo, you know, who's uh, yeah. showing up in the cool ship and, and, you know, fighting with his cool sword. And I thought, I thought he added a, a really important dose of personality to it. If you need someone to kill someone with personality, Jason Momoa is your man. I mean, like the the killing he does in C is so sexy. Like all of the like all of the sweeping, crawling, intimate, neck breaking. Like it's very, very sensual murder that he a lot does of dragging a sword across a neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's uniquely talented in figuring that out too. Like a lot of that. I mean, he works with the stunt team, but a lot of that comes from him. Mm -hmm. The thing that stood out to me, so I, I had um, famously not watched C until last year, and I watched the entire thing uh, in the run-up to season three and, and finished it. It's all of the intimate moments with him, with his arm around people and putting his head against people, not in the fighting moments, in the quieter yeah. moments that I thought sure. were so powerful. Like his performance was just really stunning. Yeah, he. Um, it was really important to him that he not play kind of a cardboard warrior. Um, in his mind, the character was significantly older and he mm. wanted to play him more like an aging, battered guy whose who's best fighting days are behind him. And he really yeah. wanted to lean into the idea of, of this father trying to hold his family together, trying to protect his family. And, you know, still a great warrior, but a great warrior who's been compromised by years of battles and injuries. And, and he basically kind of in in some ways, you know, 
limps through the series, right? And and that's done totally. on purpose. Um, and and I I think it's a credit to him that he he could have definitely sort of phoned that part in and just sailed through on on his physicality, but he chose to really embrace it as an acting challenge. I think that's what I related to as an aging dad <laughs> with knee and shoulder injuries. I was like, oh yes, yeah. like we are the same. Uh, Baba and I are united in our world weariness of lifting children uh, at an older age, and we both yeah. must survive. But you know, he was also in real life, he was going through it too. Like in season two, when he was uh, he was doing a stunt, and it was a pretty simple stunt. It wasn't even a notable fight. He he tore some tendons that you know I forgot what they're called, the ones that hold your bicep to your arm, and yeah. he had a shoulder injury, and we. He he couldn't do surgery at that point, and we were sort of holding him together with tape. And every time we came, like when when we did the fight with uh, Batista, you know, we basically made a whole plan where we were going to largely use uh, his stunt double and just mm-hmm. use him for the close-ups. And of course, on the day once he showed up, and Dave was there, and the excitement was there, he insisted on doing everything. Um, <laughs> but you know, we kept getting warned by like you know. Uh, that was season two. So we were getting warned by yeah. Francis Lawrence, who was about to do a movie with him in between seasons and who was also an executive producer of the show. Like, do, do not injure him. Do not, <laughs> Don't do not deliver guy. him to me injured. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny because like, you know, he he just, once he's there on the day, he can't hold back. Like he can't let right. his stunt double, you know, do it. So, mm. you know, we were at, at that point, we were, he was in bad shape by the end of season two. We were holding him together with like spit and tape. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think he's doing a lot better now, but he's got some sort of lifelong injuries he's dealing with. That's incredible. And one of the things that's remarkable about C, and it ties into your other shows as well, and particularly with C, I think it was true in the second and third seasons. Uh, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't write I, when the you first were, yeah, yeah, when you were right. show running the second and third seasons, like yeah. the 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 number of secondary characters that kind of take on outsized importance in the fictional world and the importance of the story and just sort of capture attention. I think is remarkable. I mean, like, you know, obviously one of the ones uh, if in, in C is, is Hoon Lee, who plays Toad, who I think is like this un, is an unreal character for like the size of the part that's actually in there that could have just been almost like a non-part, like, you know, but ends up becoming this character that you're deeply connected to and, 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 and really care about. How did, how did that come about? Well, I, I wrote that part for Hoon. I um yeah. At that point, I had done Banshee and Warrior with Hoon, and I'd never been canceled, and I just uh, felt like ah. it's best not not to do a show without Hoon, <laughs> right? So, right. um, you know that that character was written with Hoon in mind, so he was written from the first draft in in Hoon's voice, and and for Hoon to play with, and so I pretty much knew from the get go how that you know, and I and I told Hoon before he came that you know that character you know, does not make it through two full seasons and let him know <laughs> right. that. And, uh, but yeah, no. So it was, um, I just feel better, uh, when he's around. So well, I always make sure there's a role for him. I, I had never yeah. seen, uh, I had never seen him before and he leapt off the screen. Um, yeah. and I was so enamored with him that when I later, and we'll talk about Banshee more in a few minutes, but um, when I saw him in Banshee as yeah, Job, I was surprise. like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Especially what he's doing in that role. But you also have um, so many of the characters. Lord Harlan, played by Tom Mizan, mm-hmm. is so great. Magra, who almost becomes yeah. the center of the show um, as you advance through season three. Alfred Woodard, Sylvia Hoax, uh, who in Blade Runner, 
the very first movie we ever talked about uh, was Blade Runner 2049. And so her mm-hmm. performance in that, as well as Batista's, that was, I think, the first role where I saw him where I was like, whoa, holy shit, this guy is a serious actor. That that was that that those five minutes at the beginning of the second Blade Runner movie are what made me call him for C. Oh, amazing. Um, Makes sense. You know, I was I was aware of him and I'd seen some of his stuff, but um the melancholy of that character and right. the sort of brooding sadness and the intelligence. Mm. Um I had never really looked at him like that before. And there are so few people who I thought in general could be a believable nemesis to Jason. Totally. And after seeing after seeing that performance. Like I knew it had to be him. Yeah. It's just like the glasses and the whole thing is so good. And Sylvia might be one of the best on-screen psychopaths, like (laughs) just consistently. You (laughs) just see her and you're like, something's off with that one. Like she is on some other plane of existence where it's very violent. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I I would, I'd like to see her start doing um, more contemporary things because I think she's got that in her too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I obviously I didn't cast Sylvia and I didn't cast uh, Hera, who plays Magra. I, I inherited mm-hmm. them. Um, so I can't take credit for them. But um, mm-hmm. I, I will say when I went to meet everybody, which I think was, it was the premiere of season one was the first time I met the cast other than Jason. And uh, mm. I remember like being most sort of thinking I would be most intimidated by Sylvia. Um, and yeah, she turned out to be a total sweetheart, you know, wow. she's, uh, it, it's, that's good. It's, it's she didn't try to pluck person. out your eyes. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah no. The, you know, another one that obviously you inherited was Tamati June, uh, and, you know, Christian Kamagra. Kamagra. He's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that character is one of the most interesting characters I've seen in a television show in some time. But the thing that you did with it was this ridiculous arc, this ridiculous face turn arc that he goes on where he ends up becoming essentially the hero of the narrative at the end of the series. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a bit about how you sort of, how you map that out and how you thought about his art um, as you approach the finale? I, I I was just really trying to, like my, my whole rule of thumb ever since I did Banshee is that I, I really try hard not to think of anyone as a villain or a hero. Mm. Um, like what I used to say about Banshee is there are no good guys and bad guys, just nobody's innocent. Mm-hmm. And what I worried about uh, Tamakti June, who was so um, sort of iconically evil in the first season, yeah. Um, yeah. is that there's a danger that that character could become very flat. Um, mm-hmm. But you did have a few moments where, you know, he realizes like, you know, the woman he's working for is a homicidal maniac. Right. And it's funny when somebody who's killed as many people as him <laughs> starts like, to realize is someone far. is a heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought like, you know, Christian's a great actor. And if we just give him the same stuff to play for another two seasons, it's going to get stale. And I felt like, you know, this is an opportunity to really create maybe the most tortured character in this world, just yeah. somebody who's actually, you know, for lack of a better term, whose eyes are being opened. And, mm. you know, somebody who's who's been dogmatically religious his whole life and is now realizing he's kind of been fed a lot of lies. and the trauma of that and the um, the suffering involved in just waking up every day and trying to continue your existence, knowing what you're guilty of mm, um, yeah. and just seeing where, where that would come out. And also, you know, Jason and Christian are very close friends. And in mm. season two, I wanted them, you know, because I saw what they were like off screen. I wanted them to kind of, Oh, that's cool. Play together a bit. And huh. you couldn't do that. If every time they were together, Jason was trying to kill them. Right. So I needed to, <laughs> right create an alliance between them and it just did sort of you know that's what fed the room and we came up with this arc firm 
So that notion of like no villains, no heroes, as you said, is like a part of Banshee as well. Was that like one of the core concepts that you started that with? That, that well, you for started me, that's everything I do is like no one's interested in Cruella de Vil and grown up, uh, grown right. up stories. It's like the idea is that, you know, you could root for anyone, right? Like, you know, on Banshee, you know, Kai Proctor does some pretty shitty things, but you still kind of get the sense this guy's just misunderstood, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and the notion is anyone could, it could be a, uh, could be, you know, if we, we just move the lens a little bit, any one of these guys could be the star of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in motion, right. Oftentimes in, in, you know, sometimes positive and sometimes retrograde, right. Like Rebecca is constantly floating where you think maybe she's going to come back this way. Oh no, she's going in a very different and darker yeah. way. Um, and you can see how she's being kind of seduced, uh, by what's happening there. Yeah, I do want to call out. So, you know, I started watching Banshee and Greg has, uh, Greg Atanis has been on the pod a couple of times and he connected us with you and he had mentioned Banshee. So I finally got around to starting to watch it at the beginning of the year. And uh, I've been texting him as we've been hitting different episodes. Like I couldn't believe the pilot with the bus flipping and, you know, like stuff happening. That's the season finale of season one. And um, I did text him and I was like, I was like, oh my God, dude, I know you didn't direct it, but season two, episode five, the truth about unicorns. Like this episode is amazing. And he texted me back and pointed me at an article in Vanity Fair. And so this is Greg who has just done Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, um, which won Emmys and uh, huge accolades for him. Also uh, the Children of Dune miniseries. He said in this article, my longest and most fruitful collaboration is with Jonathan Tropper on Banshee. It was my first time show running, and I felt the best episode of TV I ever produced was the Babak Najafi-directed oh. season two, yeah. episode five, The Truth About Unicorns. Favorite script? And uh, I love that a genre like ours could tell a story like this. Well, first of all, Greg, you know, I, I, when I saw Banshee, I didn't know the first thing about making the TV show. I'd never done any production, so... I had to find someone like Greg who knew how to put all the pieces together and run things. And, you know, what he was really good about was kind of, you know, season one, he basically protected me from all that work so I could really focus on the writers and the scripts and being on set. And then he kind of started phasing me into post-production a little bit, phasing me into things Mm. so that by, you know, by the end, you know, by mid season two, I could be like running the show. And then, you know, by season three, he could be pulling back to start pursuing other interests right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he was very good about like coming in knowing i don't know the first thing about it and figuring out how to sort of get me up to speed in, in a way that you know to this day like i sometimes shoot him a text where i have to make a decision on the show or i have to figure something out on the show and i realized that like i'm going back to some of the stuff that you know we had to do on on banshee and and you know that was sort of my my boot camp for making television and you know mm. so i think you know, that kind of relationship where we went from being in some, you know, student teacher to kind of doing it together to him sort of pushing me out on my own. Um, ah. You know, it it, uh, it stays, you know, we're the same age, but he, you know, he was much more of an adult in, in TV than me. So, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned when we've had Greg on is that uh, another person who has a credit on Banshee for developing the title sequence is my old coworker, Biz Stone who's a childhood friend of Greg Utanis and apparently really? worked on, yeah, I knew he worked on Banshee. I was only reminded of it when Greg posted like uh, about the Banshee 10 year anniversary on Instagram. And yeah. he talked about how it was so fun to get to work with all of his friends and Biz was a part of it. Well, he wasn't part of the actual show, but but the, right. the title design. The title um, I design. Was so, I was so overwhelmed by just my first show. 
I don't think I had anything to do with the titles other than Greg showing. It to me. <laughs> like I, right. I was like, you're the just idea like, that on top of everything else, I had to go figure out a title design would just, yep. have, you know, broken me. But I know, you know, Greg worked with his brother on that. And, uh, yep. and, you know, Greg had that really early relationship with Bizstone and Twitter. Yep. I, I do think we were the first show because of Greg, Greg's such an early adapter. Um, and because of Greg's involvement in, in the you know, inception of Twitter, I, I do think we were the first show to put all the cast on Twitter accounts and have them sort of yeah. live tweet an episode. Yeah, I, I think we might have been. And he was always trying to like embrace whatever the newest thing is. There was one season we were all shooting. Um, what were they called? Vines, right? We were all right. We were all shooting uh, yeah, vines yeah. of the characters and stuff. And um, yeah, whatever was the whatever was the social trend of the moment, Greg was trying to incorporate into the it's show. It's true. He felt, yeah, you know that was a way to reach people. Yeah, that's that's really true. I it, it is true. I remember that tweeting by the cast members was like a big it was a big first. He's just he's an amazing guy and you can tell like he acts as a mentor and just really caring and thoughtful for people all over the place. Just watching his Instagram feed, it's just constant shout-outs and yeah, he, he takes great yeah, I think he takes great satisfaction in kind of, you know, spreading it around. He's been doing it a really long time and you know, mm. other than directing his own stuff, what do you do with all that experience? Like the mm-hmm. you know, most satisfying thing to do is to kind of make it available to people, you know? Amazing. Well, folks should definitely check out Banshee. It's streaming right now. It's originally on Cinemax. Uh, it is streaming currently on HBO Max. And you'll mm-hmm. immediately recognize when you turn it on, the star is Anthony Hood, who plays Homelander. Anthony Starr. On- Anthony I'm sorry, Star. Anthony Starr. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Anthony Starr, who plays Lucas Hood um, on the show, but it's Homelander from the boys. And this was mm-hmm. him, you know, 10 years ago. And he is phenomenal. We, we, we brought him over from New Zealand. Oh, really? Yeah. We were his first show out of, you know, that whole New Zealand, I guess, Australia uh, ecosystem. Wow. And, uh, you know, we had a really hard time casting that character. And uh, we had seen his tape early on and we had kind of dismissed it. Uh-huh. And, you know, we kept getting ca- like very kind of, on the nose cowboy type characters, very Clint right. Eastwoody. And right. what we were looking for was something a lot, a lot wilder. We were, we were really looking for, I think our prototype. When I wrote the pilot, I said the prototype was Colin Farrell, like a young Colin Farrell, sure, and someone who had that wild side. And and you know, and and uh, Alexa Fogel, who was our casting director, kept telling us to go back and look at that tape again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we looked at it, and then she, I, I don't remember if she had him retape or not, but we looked at it again. And decided to fly him in for a uh, an in person test. And once he showed up, uh, you know, like I remember done. we did it on the set. HBO had a, an ill fated show at the time called Luck. Lucky. Oh yeah, Luck, yeah, yeah. Luck, Luck with Luck. Dustin Hoffman. With Dustin Hoffman, and, and yeah. so we used the bar set from Luck for for uh, uh, auditions. And we had and then another person auditioning for Lucas Hood, and uh, it was really clear to us like two sentences in that that he was uh. going to be the guy. Yeah. Luck was D- David Milch's uh, Deadwood yeah. follow-up, but they kept killing horses. The horse one, so they right? had to yeah. stop. They yeah, had, we the were, horses kept dying. The, the, it was a real problem. Whereas you know we had Amish characters on the show who had horse and buggy stuff, and and yeah. there was a period when we were getting started. HBO just didn't want to hear about horses. Yeah, please and, don't talk like, to us about they, your they're horses. They're like, don't don't use horses wherever you can avoid horses. Don't use horses. Yeah. Like, they just, I'm like, they're just pulling wagons. We're not running them around a track. It'll be fine. It was uh, it was a bummer because that show was amazingly well written. As really I recall. There was one bad accident 
Mm. Yeah. And then completely unrelated, like another horse died of cancer or something. And they're like, uh, you know, <laughs> we just have to get the hell out of here. Like, you know, yeah, like gonna... some horse SARS. And they're like, ah, the production's yeah. cursed. Oh, my God. So coming off of Banshee, when Greg connected us with you and we started talking, you said that there were two films that had really informed you and inspired you for the idea um, or the influence around something like Banshee. Right. One was David Cronenberg's A History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen and Maria Bello and Ed Harris, which I finally watched for the first time and was as amazing as I knew it was going to be. And by the way, you should have uh, Josh Olson, who wrote that, is a friend of mine now. He actually does a podcast called The Movies That Made Us. Oh, Oh, yes, of course. With with Joe Dante. But Josh Josh is a walking encyclopedia of movies and TV, and you guys should have him on the show. I'm happy to make that intro if you need. Josh, come home. Open open invite. But the other one that you called out, which is the film that we are covering tonight, is Gina Davis uh, and Rennie Harlan with The Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah. Yeah. And Sam Jackson. Yes. Yeah. That was before Sam Jackson was in every movie. Um, right. Yes. You know, was, <laughs> um, but yeah, those were those were the three things that sort of cooked up Banshee for me were um, back in back in high school when I was reading The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, so wow. the, the original the original source material was the notion of this guy who and The Count of Monte Cristo is wrongly in prison. But either way, it's a guy who's in prison for quite a few years. And then when he comes back, he reinvents himself. Uh, mm. as a different person to go you know seek his revenge um so that was something that had always kind of intrigued me as uh, you know a prisoner coming out and being another guy amazing um, and then you know what both the history of, of violence and and the long kiss good night have are the notion of someone in a small town yep who's got a history of all this stuff and what happens when that stuff comes home to roost in the small town and right. that, that's what really got my juices flowing about Banshee and and the energy of those movies and the pulpiness of those movies. It all just, mm-hmm. it, I, I think Banshee owes a lot to those two movies. Mm, that's really, great. really great. great. So we're going to get into that in just one minute. We have one question to ask before we do that. And that is, what is your history, if any, with Dune? Other than uh, we've already established, you saw uh, Jason Momoa screen the movie. Yeah, for you, which is pretty <laughs> yeah, strong. Yeah, that, I don't have. That's currently first place in the canon yeah. of Dune Pod. You're in right. first place. Yeah, that, yeah. that's going to have to do really because the only yeah. other thing I'll tell you is when I was a kid. Yeah, my my dad was a very big fan of the book, so I read the book. I didn't read all the books. I read okay, I read the sure. first Dune book, and then uh, I remember him bringing home the VCR tape of the movie where Sting played. Uh, yeah, yeah what's his name? Fade Routha. Yeah. And I just remember watching that movie and thinking to myself, well, first of all, being blown away because I was a big police fan at the time and just being blown away that Sting was this guy. And then also just saying, I need to come back in a few years and watch this when I can actually understand it better. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, But then I didn't see the miniseries or anything else. And yeah, my next exposure to it was when Jason said, you guys have to come see this movie. It's going to blow you away. I think De Laurentiis was hoping that more people would be police fans like you were and be really <laughs> excited that Sting was in the movie and that would somehow carry the carry people watching it. Um, and it didn't work out. But we're going to get Elvis as I will fade just in the tell next you, one. So. I haven't seen it in a long time, but my recollection was Sting was not the problem. <laughs> yeah, no, Sting's not the problem. Definitely That's, not. Definitely yeah. true. Definitely true. Yeah. There was some influence even beyond uh, Dino, who was recutting it, was under extreme yeah. pressure from the studio. So, uh, so it was quite yeah. a challenge. 
What do you think? Should we get into let's talk about, Long let's Kiss? Let's talk about Long Kiss, yeah. Sure, it's one of my favorites. All right, here we go. The Long Kiss Goodnight is the internal battle to balance the truth of who we are versus who we wish we were. Samantha Kane is an ordinary housewife and PTA mom with a loving husband and eight-year-old daughter, except for a rare medical condition that prevents her from remembering anything prior to Caitlin's birth. But when she suffers a near-fatal car accident, disturbing memories, incredible skills with weapons, and a dark persona begin to bubble up to the surface. Samantha must rely on these newly returned skills and the help of the degenerate private detective, Mitch Hennessy, when her old deadly enemies learn she is still alive and try to kill her. Transforming back into her old persona, the cold-blooded killer, Charlie, she will go on a rampage to protect the ones she loves and get payback for her lost years. But before she turns the page on Samantha forever, she'll have to decide whether she's really ready to give her the long kiss goodnight. Mmm. It's a great movie. I had never Boom. seen this movie before watching it for this pod. So thank you for introducing it to me. That's that's crazy to me because yeah. like I saw it in theaters when it came out and yeah. I'm a giant Shane Black fan. And yep. for me, it was just like, for me, it was a seminal movie just because, I mean, this was years. I, I don't, I'm very bad with chronology as you're going to find out. I had Love <laughs> Lethal Weapon. I had Love yeah. Lethal Weapon, which came out probably five or six years before Like this, 87, I think. Right? Something. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm pretty confident that a movie like True Lies hadn't come out yet. Just mm-hmm. right. Yeah. True Lies was '94, so it yeah. has. So same it year. Come out same year. Oh, same year. Okay, but either yeah. way, the the ungrounded, the heightened nature of the action. I mean, there's like I was so used to grounded action, and even Lethal Weapon, it's a little preposterous, but the action is fairly grounded. And mm-hmm. then you have this movie where, like, yeah, you know, they're trying to escape uh, in this in this building near the bus terminal, and yeah. He yeah. throws a grenade, but for some reason that grenade turns into a huge inferno of <laughs> right. fire chasing them down the hallway, so they have to jump out the window. And then yeah. as she's falling towards Shooting the, out ice, the ice, she has uh-huh. to machine gun the ice so they can fall through. <laughs> and like and, and when you watch it, I remember being like, What the what the hell is this? You know, like and then you realize and you just go with it, you know, yeah. or that the fact which they which they're guilty of in plenty of movies, like she sees the Christmas lighting has gotten all tangled around stuff, but she knows if she kind of holds on to this piece of string and cuts that one, she's going to fly up with yeah, a right. counterweight of a dead body. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, like all these kind of really larger than than life, completely impractical and implausible action sequences that just add to the sense of humor of the whole thing. And right. you know, rather than diminish it, I thought it actually really sharpened it. And it was just, it kind of changed the way I looked at, at what you could do in, in action films. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. Do you feel, is that something you do? Do you find you do in your own work? Because I feel like no. the violence in, yeah, the violence I, in your I movie get, isn't funny. I actually, <laughs> one of, I think one of the things I struggle with, depending on what I'm writing is I'm constantly saying, well, could that happen? Could that define, like, right, I'm always right. trying to ground the shit out of everything. And every once in a while, I need someone to push me and say, just, just go with it. Like, you know, yeah, right. You know, when we were when we were filming uh, the climax of uh, you yeah, the final episode of season two of C, um, yeah. you know, Jason had this idea that it turns out they're all fighting on a frozen lake. Yes, and all of a sudden, and like I just kept saying, I, there were two things. I'm like, I don't know how the hell we're going to shoot that, 
Right. And he just Fair. and he just kept saying, no, 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 it'll be fine. We'll just shoot it and we'll VFX and blah blah blah. You know, he, he you know he had the benefit of having done all these big VFX <laughs> Aquaman movies. I, movies. I had not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um and then I was like, but like, how would they not know? How would they not feel beneath their feet? How? And he's just like, just do it, just do it, just go with yeah, it. Yeah. And like, yeah. And sometimes you have to give yourself license to be a little more absurd. And I find I'm actually sometimes too grounded. Yeah. The mm. fight in Banshee that everyone talks about is the car when, fight. Uh, the car fight with Nola and that Roush's character, Burton, right? And I fought against that fight so hard. I, I disagree. I fought with the directors. I fought with Greg. I said, guys, this is a ridiculous fight. He flips open his trunk and he has not just a whole bunch of weapons, but they're set up like a freaking museum display. Yes. We have to pull out every weapon and they're fighting through the car and around the car. And it's like, I just said, this is ridiculous. It's going to completely untether the show. And what I didn't understand is like that ship had sailed from the first episode of the pilot, ah, right? And yeah. you know, and and it turned out to be not only one of the most popular, if not the most popular sh- uh, fight on our show, but it's considered like I've seen on the internet one of the best TV fights ever. And I was dead against it, even in post production. I was like, we yeah. shouldn't have done this, and I was wrong. Wow. You know, wow. It's just you know, I do tend to you know, my nature is just to keep it grounded. Hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about like the pilot of Banshee where there's the hand, there's the hole in the hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like, that's like kind of a gag. Like it's, it's sort of a joke, yeah. but it doesn't really play as funny. It plays as like, right. hor- you know, like, like scary. Horrifying. It plays yeah. as like, right. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I, it's interesting. Cause I was wondering about that. I was, I'm glad you spoke to that. Cause I was wondering about that and watching this movie. Cause so much of the violence in this movie like is for a joke. It's like for it's for it's for fun as opposed to as opposed to like for for scary. But but that was still, you know, that was still a little bit of I don't know why, but that was still a revelation to me. Like, so, you know, I came of age, you know, in the 80s. And, you know, for me, the the ultimate, ultimate two action movies that defined that whole era were Rambo, Rambo, okay. Rambo and Die Hard. OK. Right? Yeah. And, for sure. and and there was a lot of fun in the mayhem. But for right. the most part, if you discount the fact that Stallone was killing an entire platoon of soldiers by himself, <laughs> there was still like he shot the arrow. The arrow had a bomb at the end of it. People blew up. He killed the guy right. with his knife. The guy died. There was a level of groundedness to it. Right. Right. For sure. Um, and Die Hard again. It's it's crazy. The gla- but the still fl- the, each the glass and the feet is like incredible, yeah. like makes it not funny. Each moment is still each moment alone is something that doesn't defy the laws of physics. Right. 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 And right. then you right. get to the 90s and they're doing things like uh, True Lies and this movie where suddenly action is absurd. But right. if it's done right, I found it actually enhances the project because it creates a sense of we're all going with this together. You know, and, and, and I think it also speaks to the theatrical experience because I'm not sure if those movies, if my first watch of those movies had been at home alone, that I would have leaned into it the same way when an entire crowded theater is sort of celebrating and cheering the absurdity of those moves. That's Mm -hmm. smart. That's smart. Do you think that means that some of this just couldn't be done for television then because you wouldn't have that shared theatrical experience? Um, yeah, I think you have to be careful with television. If you get too heightened in television, we don't have any examples yet of that really working that I can think of. Um, right. when we made Banshee, our whole goal was like, my goal in pitching the show was no one has done cinematic action on TV yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing in TV shows that compares. And that's why I found myself, this was in the days of, of, you know, cable. I found myself late at night when I wanted to watch something trolling all the different HBOs and Cinemaxes just 
looking for some crappy, you know, martial arts film by Jeff Speakman or something, just because, you know, I wanted to find action with a little bit of grit and dirt that didn't exist on, on, you know, the neutered action you were seeing on TV. So I think we were successful in bringing that kind of action uh, to, to television but even 100%. so, and, he, and even then on Warrior, where we're doing, you know, martial arts, like my big rule on Warrior is no crouching tiger, hidden dragon. You know, we don't use mm-hmm. wires. We don't do any, you know, we don't do any martial arts that don't feel consequential and painful and violent and grounded in some kind of reality. It's not, you know, not necessarily our reality, but but grounded in, in yeah. some level of physics and reality. And I think if you put something more surreal on on TV it might be a tougher sell because I think there is something in the communal experience of embracing the craziness that really works. Yeah. I think you could do like something that's like a little bit more cinematic or or like a little bit more like theatrical, like into the borderlands or whatever, like is doing like a slightly more into um, the badlands, right? Into the badlands. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, is doing like a, well, they're going a little more in the crouching tiger direction with wire work and with the sort of mystical powers of Kung Fu. Right, um, right, right. Which I just, I, I, you know, with Warrior, I wanted to keep everything really gritty and grounded. So we, I, I yeah. have nothing against that, and I love Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But to yeah. me, that doesn't ever feel like anyone's getting hurt. You know, That's it great. feels like a lot of dance. It's hard to hurt someone when you're skipping through the leaves of a tree. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel real. So it's more artistic and it's different, but it doesn't feel like you never gasp when somebody takes a really hard, you know punch to the head I'm, I'm much more of a fan of the raid redemption than than crouching tiger <laughs> nice I, I mean i'm doing a lot of gasping i will say at the amount of pain and violence that i'm seeing inflicted uh, having watched now 32 episodes over the last uh over the last month it's intense uh but it's definitely satisfying uh, well i'll also tell you when we made banshee i had never done tv before i didn't know the limits Right? right, and I didn't know right. how things would necessarily also translate on screen when I wrote them. And then you took Greg, who was graduating from probably twenty years of broadcast network directing, and was right. suddenly being handed control over not just pay cable but Cinemax pay cable. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I right, think, right, right. I think the combination of my ignorance and him being like a horse out of the gate took Banshee maybe further than I intended um, <laughs> right. in terms of the violence. And you will see that as we get to season three and four, there is a maturing in, in the action and violence where it's a little less sensational than it is. It's still we still strove for great action, but we we made it a little less in your face. It's a little less mm. shocking, and it's you know except for one or two things I could think of, but um, <laughs> it, it became a little less um, you know shocking because I think we had yeah. calmed down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, so so this this film, um, Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, developed yeah. uh, before 1994. Uh, New Line paid $4 million for Shane Black's script, uh, which at the time was the highest uh, price ever yeah, paid. He was so hot off Lethal Weapon that, like, I'm sure oh, yeah. anything he wrote was, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, I just, there, there was very little behind the scenes about this. Um, there was one note that the 127 year old Windmere house in Ontario, Canada, where they shot a bunch of this caught a fire. fire. <laughs> yep. And only the stone veranda survived. Um, that's the payback for the war of 1812 Canadians. <laughs> I, I, it's not clear that it had anything to do with the production though. No, 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 I don't think it did. Yeah. I don't think it did. I was amazed that they let Rennie Harlan direct this after cutthroat Island. And right. which was like 
the most famous bomb of that decade, maybe. But I yeah. I suspect that because they came out a year apart, he had already made that deal. Yeah, he must have before. been locked in before Cutthroat Island, so he got to actually not go to director's jail right away um, yeah. and make this one. You know, yes. he's under house arrest. And Gina da- Gina yeah. Davis is in like is in her action hero sequence here right now because she has you know she has this one and then we also did a league of their own uh, on the pod and so she's doing all of these like more physical physical like physical roles uh in this time which is wild but it is amazing having her in this role and you know famously it had a 65 million dollar budget it grossed 95 worldwide and Shane specifically blamed the failure on the fact that it was featuring a woman instead of a man. Um, and to me, mm. that's what makes this film groundbreaking. Although to be clear, he wasn't he wasn't saying it in a way where he agreed with that. He was sort of pointing out a problem in Hollywood that that mm. you know, making a female lead in an action movie doesn't get the same support. Um, with, oh, you know, which obviously, you know, he wasn't right. he wasn't like sitting there with a cigar saying, "Well, we should have put a man in the lead." He was. He was saying yep. it's unfortunate that with a female in the lead, we didn't get the same support, you know, maybe from the studio, maybe from the audiences that we should have gotten. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, yeah, it was groundbreaking. And that's also, I mean, you had, other than Sigourney Weaver, you know, right. who had done the right. Aliens franchise, um, there hadn't been someone like this. And and she was, that was a great influence for us where we made you know, Banshee, Carrie Hopewell, kind of our most badass fighter uh, on the show, just because we we were really embracing that whole gina davis vibe of of you know you know it turns out that the housewife is the deadliest person in town you know and and there's a lot of fun to, there's a lot of fun to be had with that and and you know i think ivana and our show really carried that really well and i mean gina davis is totally you totally buy it in the movie that mm-hmm. you know that, that she's this badass who can do all that mm, stuff totally absolutely well so it is funny this is a christmas movie jason similar yes. to die hard right <laughs> Yes, I wasn't and really Lisa ready weapon, for Christmas. By the way. Yes, I wasn't really ready to do Christmas again so soon. But yes, it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> and it works. And so we do have the setup. Basically, she lost her memory. She doesn't know where, you know, who she is from eight years before, but she knows she has scars on her body um, and various other things. We also have Mitch, you know, Mitch is a private detective and he's like really slumming it. He's like running these shakedowns. Did you notice, Jason, who his shakedown partner was? Uh, I don't know who it is. Who is it? Who is it? It was Worm's girlfriend from the country club poker game. Oh, in that's Rounders. great. Yeah. Wow. What yeah, a, what, no, what but a... it's also Melina. Melina, I'm blank. Can't, yeah. I can't pronounce her last name. She had her yeah. own show. Yeah. She, she on, graduated on... from this and, and got her own network show for a while. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's terrific. That's always that fun experience when you go back to see a movie you haven't seen in a long time and you realize some of the smaller characters later on became stars, but you forgot they were in these little these yeah. little movies but yeah no she because she was definitely overqualified for her role in, the, in <laughs> melina kanakana reddies all yes. right so things change when we have one of the uh the gnarly car crash uh where she crashes into a deer um and it, that is like a very over the top the crash her breaking the deer's neck like all of that yeah. stuff um, but it does start to get this notion of Charlie, her previous kind of persona, starting to come back. And to me, that's the most effective part of this film. This notion of there's a battle between the two parts of her psyche, um, and it Severance, you know, obviously perfected mm. this uh, this last year. But I thought that was there was a really amazing component there. And and while I've never talked to Shane Black, I have to believe he had read the Born Identity. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, and this is prior to those Bourne movies, but I mean, the Bourne identity is sort of the grandfather of the amnesia action star, right? And right. Um, yeah. I think it's great that before those Bourne movies were made, that someone said, "Let's do that," but it's a woman, you know. Right. And I right. mean, it's uh, yeah, and that that the the fun of that trigger, like you know, in a history of violence, it's it's the holdup at the coffee shop, and you know, and here it's this car crash where you suddenly start to realize exactly what kind of movie you're in. Right. And, and like and, just going uh, back to the grounded violence thing, like the born identity is like the opposite extreme, right? Like everything yeah. in that feels like great, okay, great, he, great. yeah. They just had to like he had to shove a newspaper in someone's mouth, I guess. <laughs> Sucks to be that actor, you know. Um <laughs> God, I can't wait to rewatch that. I know, I'm excited. I saw a clip of it today on TikTok and I was like, I'm gonna watch the whole movie right now. It's so oh. great. It's so good. So of course we have the the cutting carrot scene, which is one of the most famous ones of the movies, where she's yes. you know, first doing the worst carrot. Like this really offended a couple people in the Dune Pod. Uh, they're like a seven year old can cut carrots better than this, but once she starts doing it, it's really fun. And it reminded me, Jason, of the beginning of Poltergeist when they're like sliding across the floor and like something kind of magical is happening, and you haven't really yep. gotten to the negative implications. Uh, yep. Chefs do that line is great. Chefs do that, but that's the thing that bothered me is like an assassin. Yes, yeah, so she's good at handling a knife, but does that mean she knows how to dice vegetables? Like, like <laughs> which which part of the CIA teaches you vegetable yeah. dicing? Like, yeah. I think killing people is a slightly different skill. I assume though that yeah. like they discussed that and and they were like, how do we convey that she's got incredible knife yeah. skills? Like, let's, let's well, because it this, ends right? with the throw, right? It ends yeah. with where, yeah. where she throws. Uh, I forgot it was a potato or something up in the air, and then yeah, pins it to a wall. Like, yeah, chefs do that. Chefs, do that. Well, we got to see Jason Bourne's knife work with a potato. See if he can julienne <laughs> some fries up for us. We have to get to the bottom of this. Maybe they do their recruiting in kitchens. Maybe that's how the CIA does yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, and interestingly enough, the Culinary Institute of America shares an acronym with the CIA. So maybe that maybe <laughs> there's more maybe there's yeah. more going on there than meets the eye. I did want to call out. You talked about the over the over the top action, like this initial when the guy comes to kill her in the house, and like. I don't know what kind of shotgun that is, but it blows holes through An walls. An entire like it, hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Explosive shotgun rounds. That was pretty. That was yeah. pretty hilarious. Yeah, and also like throwing your kid to the treehouse through the hole. Like, yeah, you just you just threw her like twenty feet horizontally with no arc <laughs> into the treehouse. Right, right. As a dad with two toddlers who enjoys throwing his children quite a bit, I was like, that's too far. You, you're going to throw yeah. out your shoulder for sure trying to throw that far. It's difficult difficult to make that aim. Yeah. It is worth calling out. There is an element of this film that is, we just did uh, recently Three Days of the Condor, and there are a lot Great of movie. very specific callbacks to Three Days of the Condor through the midst of that. Um, but this notion of having somebody rogue and trying to figure out, you know, are you going to bring them back or are they going to fight their way out or whatnot? Um, but Jason, I just did want to pause briefly on this. So we have the scene of the POTUS, uh, you know, the president making a sandwich yeah. um, and basically saying that the agency's budget is gone because it has to go to healthcare. Just in my lap and then you come whining to me and say, where is our funding? Well, I'll tell you where it is. Can you say healthcare? A lot of healthcare, a lot of healthcare spend problems in these mid '90s movies. That's like a like a Clinton commentary for sure. Yeah, '94, right? Like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a big concern. This Hillary Clinton healthcare plan is gonna bankrupt <laughs> our intelligence agencies. <laughs> but that's but the fun of it is that the entire you know MacGuffin plot at the end of the movie 
was literally yeah. an entire terrorist plot simply designed to scare the government into funding the CIA. Yeah, that was yeah. and 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 that is wild because like as we got to as we were watching the movie in the chuckle, there's a bunch of us who hadn't seen it. And as it gets to we're going to blow up the World Trade Center, we're like, oh, what, what, what? Well, we're not even what? that. They were going to blow up like uh, a Canadian the, town or yeah, it was a, a, on the, a on the border, border town. Yeah. Yeah. The border. No, town. but he talks about he talks about the bombing of the World Trade Center. So they it said it was that, a like, false flag. They said the yeah, CIA yeah, yeah, yeah. Punch, punched yeah. the passport. Yeah, yeah it was it, the 9-11 was an inside job is predestined in this movie what's the temperature uh, that steel melts jason exactly you gotta ask <laughs> shane black he knows for sure <laughs> a lot of late nights early mornings discussing uh discussing yeah. 9-11 um so let's see let's get to brian cox because we haven't talked about him yet oh yeah we have the whole line with him with the dog that is uh hilarious alice please your dog alice it and my appetite are mutually exclusive well, what's wrong with the dog? It's simple. He's been licking his asshole for the last three straight hours. I submit to you that there is nothing there worth more than an hour's attention. And I should think that whatever he is attempting to dislodge is either gone for good or there to stay. Wouldn't you agree? I, I think his his best line is when he says to Sam Jackson, you know, there may be many reasons to kill you, but among them is not that NASA will miss you. <laughs> you know? um, which, by the way, I would just highlight like what, what I think elevates this movie beyond being just a really fun action movie is it's got some fantastic like one-liners in it. Like Absolutely. Shane Black is not phoning this in. It's got some some of the wittiest lines, like things that made you laugh out loud in the theater. Yes. And and like the humor is so unexpected when it comes. Um, even like, you know, halfway through the movie when you're now used to Sam Jackson having all these killer lines. Yeah. You know, my favorite is like, you know, this guy's holding a gun to Gina Davis and he says, you know, this is a big gun. And then Sam Jackson cocks a gun at his head and says, This ain't no ham and rye. Yeah, and she says to him, What are you doing? And he says, Saving your life. I would have been here sooner, but I was thinking up that ham and rye line. Yeah. Like, you know, it just like he he wasted no opportunity to just yeah he could have left all those scenes and they would have been functional and he found a way to just make them pop yeah. with such great dialogue. Yeah, that's know? true. The writing is really strong on all it's, those it's lines. It's more and than this, this genre I think usually gets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is yeah. during like the Sam Jackson it's like the Renaissance. Yeah. yeah, like the everything. Like I mean, yeah. Pulp Fiction is two years prior. He's yeah. doing all of the movies. Jackie right Brown now. a little bit, yeah. a little bit after. Yeah. Pre pre Marvel. <laughs> Yeah, oh, pre-Marvel. Yeah. yeah, he's not By a long spot. Yet. Yeah, like yeah, twelve yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, what a run. Yeah, yeah, really, really legend shit. Um, so we have Brian Cox. They sort of get, you know, they get with him. They escape from him because they don't trust him. They don't know who to trust. And she ends up uh, meeting Luke, who she thinks is her fiance, but turns David out David Morris. Yeah. Oh my god. From Contact. So what's amazing about David Morris is someone somewhere figured out that this soft-spoken, sweet-faced guy. <laughs> It's a much better villain. <laughs> so and scary. Like, you know, he, when you consider his start, like I'm thinking about St. Elsewhere. And, yeah. and then like, you know, he, he, he could have had a whole career playing sweet guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And someone figured out this guy's like six foot four. And how scary would it be if he wasn't nice? Yeah. And, yeah. and he's such a great villain, you know? We did with Greg. We 12 did 12 Monkeys. monkeys. Yeah. 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 The year before this came out, he's like the ultimate murderer of all mankind in yeah. 12 Monkeys. 
Yeah, uh, but he'll always be he'll always be Ellie's dad to me. Like Contact, I think was the first thing I really really paid attention to him in, and yeah, and just phenomenal. Yeah, really good in that. It's a very soulful actor. The other really good Craig Burko as like the the assassin lead is amazing. I mean, like a really fun take on that type of character as being so glib. Mm. Um, I feel we don't. Well, get- you know, you take but you take a theater actor and you say, "Here's the scenery. Here's some salt. Go." You know, <laughs> and. And he just went for it. Like it feels like he was completely given free reign to get as big as he wanted to to get. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm. He definitely went for it. Uh, that is yeah. for sure. So, so she kills Daedalus. She rescues Mitch, and they head to Atlantic City. And to me, this I love was... the torture scene. I think yeah. the, the 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 torture the wa- scene. The water on the wheel. Wall, you mean the, the water, water wheel? wheel is the water wheel is pretty great because it's so elaborate. It's like such a. It's, it's like a, a Batman and set. Robin trap from yeah. like the original, the from the yeah. you know the Adam West show. It's like yeah. yeah, I'm like okay, you got a mill, you chained her to the wheel, like Brian Cox is under there. You got to go in Brian Cox's pants. Like the whole thing is just so much. But you know what? That is one also of what what this movie did so magnificently that it became predictable was laying pipe and then paying off. There are like so many examples where like when she's leaving and she writes her cell phone on the daughter's cast and then she, you know, the daughter then has the, she says, light a candle for me to find my way home. And then she's got the matches later on when they need matches. And when Brian Cox conveniently tells Sam Jackson, I've got three guns, one here, one here, and one next to Mr. Wally. So she knows, (laughs) she knows to go into his crotch and get the gun when she's underwater and she sees his dead body and, um, and then, you know, that little kid who's trying to steal cigarettes, you know, and then when she yeah. comes back to town with her giant machine gun and she catches him smoking in the yard right. and you see him wet his pants, like, right. like there are just so many great payoffs to things from the first act, you know? Oh, that yeah. Is really, that is really true. There's a lot of good writing in this movie, like, and a lot of good, a lot of good seed planting. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, let me just say, quick aside, Jason, on being yeah. in, the free, in the freezing water. Um, yeah. When I was in South Carolina with my brothers this last weekend, uh, Rennie was showing cold me. plunging? Uh, no. Well, he, th- this was suggested, but have you seen the show Limitless? Yes. On Disney Plus? The show? No, no. I've just seen, I've just seen the Not the Bradley the Cooper. Movie. So, I didn't even know it was a TV show. Is it related? No. Limitless is a okay. new TV okay. show starring Chris Hemsworth, produced by Darren Aronofsky. Oh, right, 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 right. And right, it's right, about right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. pushing yeah, yeah, yeah. yourself in he all the extremes. Shit. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. one of which is swim 250 yards in 36 degree weather. No, it's a pass. It's and the concept—hold <laughs> on. So the concept is that it shocks your body and it causes yeah. you to do all of this crazy interior me- metabolic stuff. Yeah, it's called dying of hypothermia. Correct. That's what it's. <laughs> well, that's but, what it's called. So Rennie, my brother, has now integrated this into his daily experience. You take the yeah. last 30 seconds of your shower as a completely cold shower. Oh, I know people who are doing that. Of course. Yeah. So, Matt, this, we, live in, we live in San Francisco. Every tech bro <laughs> in the world has a cold plunge in their house right now. Like, literally, you can't throw a rock without it landing in a cold plunge. So do like, you have one? Go on the record. No, on the cold I'm, not, plunge. I'm not doing that. I actually do have a cold plunge, but I don't use it. But, uh, <laughs> I was required to have it like by zoning. You have to have one if you live in like a certain neighborhood of San Francisco. But yeah, no, like everyone swears by it. But there was a phase last year. I'm forgetting what it was called. I feel like it was started with a W where people were just taking cold showers in the morning. Yes. Mm. Yeah. They love I it. Forgot they it absolutely called. love it. So my, what I told my brother is like, okay, maybe I could live longer. Maybe I could be healthier. I'm not doing it. Like forget yeah. it. Apparently you get used to it is what they say. Like after day five, you're like, I love this. I could stay in here for 45 minutes. 
whatever. whatever. I'm good. <laughs> I am also good. Uh, so this makeover in Atlantic City, speaking of showers, like her just coming out, oh, yeah. you've got the Santana, uh, Black Magic Woman, yeah. you, the eyeshadow, the looks look great. on that. Um, she looks awesome. The platinum hair. Yeah. The, uh. the roll of the shot across her chin to do the shot and then roll off the side is amazing. Yeah. Finlandia vodka. So that was Rennie Harlan. He always uh, slips in a, uh, an Easter egg. Um, uh. And then there's this kind of romance segment between the two of them, right? Where it is kind of like she's manipulating him, but then there also is some feeling there. It's That, I thought, yeah. worked really well. You know, that was sort of the, the traditional point in late 80s, early 90s action movies where your two heroes would have sex, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And mm-hmm. obviously we would have, you know, worried about her since she's with a guy. Like it would have been, it, we would have, we would have uh, been not been trusted by the studio to not have complicated feelings about her if she slept right. with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure the movie wouldn't have been better if they had, because they could have filmed a really funny sex scene. Yes. But, you know, what he says to her when he's suspect of her motives, you know, he says to her, I ain't handsome, I ain't rich, and the last time I got blown, candy bars cost a nickel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, candy bars cost a nickel. Right. <laughs> it I mean to me it's this is part line. this is part of the boldness right there you don't have a lot of hollywood movies where you have a white woman uh and a black man like that is that, yeah. that well, especially like sort of older sam jackson where he's like all run i mean like he's not old but he he's like is, he's all fucked up like he's yeah. he, it would have been a funny sexy cuz it could have been like oddly violent like she could have been like yeah. you know like she was just like overpowering him in and the you sex could see scene, him basically. just looking like what the hell did i just what get the hell's into? happening yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah. I wish we'd gotten more of this like Gina Davis action star era. Like I wish like the Eon Flux well, movie if, had if happened this, during this time. If this oh, movie wow. had succeeded box office wise, I think we would have had it. But, you know, that's kind of the way Hollywood works, right? This one didn't work. So none can work. Yeah. Right? Until one does. Right. Until Mad and, Max, until Furiosa. Yeah. Yeah, she should have been able to do all of the Charlize stuff, though. Yeah. Like she should have been yeah. able to do like all of that, all of that kind of work. Uh, would have been uh-huh. would have been really fun to see. Golly, the next, yeah, mm. the next one I can think of that that really stood out to me is Haywire uh, Soderbergh, which we should do uh-huh. at some point. Which, by the way, when you do that, that is an oddly restrained movie for who they have in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about what Gina Carano could have done. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I think it's a real credit to Soderbergh that he made that a super gripping movie without totally exploiting her MMA abilities, you know? Totally. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, all right. So she has to go back and get the key, uh, which, as you stated, had been perfectly set up. Um, there's this whole moment where she's using the rifle scope to look and see her daughter and boyfriend. Yeah, which is fantastic. The, mm-hmm. the, meta, the metaphor on screen there is amazing. Yeah, exactly. And then Alan Silvestri uh, with a score I thought was really good um, in that moment. So I dug that her ice skating uh, across and taking the guys out and it's one shot per guy. Um, and also that's another one of those moments where if I was writing this script, I would have sat there and said, well, it's going to take her five minutes to lace up her skates. <laughs> right. So right. how do I slow down the car? To give her yeah, time. Right. And instead, it's just like we just assume she could slip into those skates in about three seconds. No problem. And yeah. be on the ice. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and that was a great sequence. Really, really good. So the, the rest of this is basically the assault on, uh, you know, the CIA set up here. And, and I will say for me personally, I felt like this third act kind of drags as we've got a lot of pieces happening here, them being captured, them breaking out, them kind of going on the run. 
uh, in the truck. There's definitely some really incredible uh, segments that happen through here, including Samuel L. Jackson exploding out a window. Out and of the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> through a sign um, and her stealing the truck, which is going to explode, which has my favorite line of dialogue in the movie. Sir, she's got the truck. She's headed out of town. I'm, I'm hurt real bad. I think I'm dying. Continue dying. Out. Continue dying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think in all these movies, that's the hardest thing to bring home is when the setup is so delicious, you know, mm-hmm. coming to the denouement is always harder because you've got to kind of start tying all the strands together and you lose the the journey is the fun part. And the destination, it, it's it's really hard to make the destination as much fun. And that's true for comedy and for action. And when it's action comedy, I guess it's doubly true. We discussed it with Spectre even, you know, after James blows up the big thing, you know, he turns to uh, to Leia Seydoux and says, it's not over. And you look at it and there's 34 minutes left in the film. You're like, okay, we, <laughs> right? yes, it's not over. It could have been, uh, you know, with a 50, you know, hour and 45 minute uh, film, but I guess it's not. I will say one thing we tried to do on Banshee that became a little bit of a of a hobby of ours was to not follow the predictable three act structure. And sometimes what we would try to do is, you know, do the big set piece 20 minutes in and then have, you know, 40 minutes of storytelling and build up that may not pay off till the next episode. But we, we tried to really be, you know, un, unbind ourselves from the typical, you know, 40 minutes and this has to happen in a one hour show. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do that in a three act movie. Everyone is, right. is headed towards the big payoff together. And, right. you know, you're going to sink or swim. And I guess, yeah, there, there definitely could have been a cleaner, tighter mm. version of this. But they had setups. They had so many balls in the air. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you've got, you know, all of the the multiple battles with Timothy, of course, with the one that you laid out perfectly where she she goes shooting up, catches the gun in the air uh, and, and finally the takes counterweight assault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I had read I read, though, that um, originally Samuel Jackson was supposed to die. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I you thought can he was dead. Of, and you can sort of see that he's really at death's door. Right. And then I forgot, we, the note came down from the studio or from somebody like, don't kill Samuel <laughs> Jackson. <laughs> <He lived. laughs> and, yeah. And so they changed it and you got that great sort of driving out of the truck. Yeah, it right. was fantastic, but yeah. And then arguably the biggest explosions in history, including oh my god, them dodging exploding cars that were yeah. that were flying down. It was just hilarious. Yeah, at that point they just said, "Fuck it, we're all in." You know, we'll <laughs> just they they blew up the Peace Bridge. They blew up. You know, when I, when we shot C in Toronto, I stopped flying because of COVID, and that was my bridge into and out of Canada. <laughs> Oh really? And, that's the bridge it, they you know, I have real sentimental attachment to that bridge because because you had to go through and you had to present your COVID test and you yeah, had to do yeah. another COVID test. And the reason I started driving instead of flying was because the airport was much more backed up and strict. And if of I course, drove across yeah. the Peace Bridge, you know, I would do it at like one in the morning. There'd be no one there. I'd sit there, do my test, and go through. It was they were just wow. much more chill there. But uh, wow. that was the bridge. Way to go, Canada! That explosion, like. Like Christopher Nolan making Oppenheimer and building his own nuclear weapon is looking at that bridge explosion. Like, I don't know. I don't know what more I can do. Like they already blew the shit out of this bridge. It was, it went on so long. It's like 13 seconds of explosion. It's a big year for bridge explosions because also true lies has that incredible. So good. So good. There is something very nineties. This movie feels like of a certain era. Like it, it really does. You know, like both the way, the way it looks, the, the, 
the way the violence is done, the humor of it, like it, it all, it feels very the contained. The fact that she, I think she refers to her phone as her portable phone. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And by the way, 96, I think 96 was the year I got my cell phone. <laughs> Interesting. There is yeah. this like, we've talked about it before when we did like Ronin. There's this like very abbreviated period of time in which it's not the 80s. Like there is technology that we recognize from now, but it yeah. doesn't quite work. And if it yeah. did work, the movie wouldn't work. And right. so like it, it it has to it has to exist in this liminal zone. And it all and all the movies from that time have that sort of uh, stamp on them. But that's also why, like, the, the fun of that guy sitting in prison at the beginning who sees her in the Christmas parade. Yeah. Right? And by when the way, I magically off, off screen breaks out. Just, like, we, <laughs> he right, escaped. Yeah. We next, yeah, we just find out he escaped. Right. But, um, you know, if that had been a little later, he would have just seen right. it on someone's TikTok or Instagram. And right. Like, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Or may, maybe sure. not in prison, but, you know, yeah. Oh, they got, they got, they got it in prison. But she would not yeah. have lived you know, eight years completely off the grid. Right. If right. People had iPhones and social. A hundred percent. Yeah. Much, she would be, she would been tagged in Instagram. Is yeah. this the assassin? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Jason, uh, Mrs. Kane, I'm putting your call through to the president. Uh, and yeah. then she, you know, he says, you, you, do you want to come back? It pays really well. And she says, well, I, I already am well paid as a teacher. And he said, well, yeah. I'm working on getting working increasing on teacher compensation yeah. in the yeah. next term. So, yeah. so it continues, Jason, the nineties, all the issues are there. He's really working yeah, hard. I can't help but think that Shane Black was just making fun of our inept politicians. Like, they, yes, I yeah. don't think he was really taking up the cause there. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we have, you know, the great retirement to California sitting outside. Everything's perfect except for that damn cricket. And so we have wherever that is, is gorgeous. I desperately yeah, want to go like wherever we're they were. me. I mean, oh, it, my God. I yeah, thought it was Canada for some I was going to guess Vancouver. But you know. yeah, I was going to guess. No, I was going to guess right. further north. Incidentally, just to go back to sea for a minute. One thing I was realizing I was I was watching season three. Y'all shout outside just we a lot. throws our asses off. Like we how froze, did I mean like. I, it just must have been so logistically difficult to be outside all the time. Like, it like it, all the, you had to build a whole town and I'm like, well, that's cool. Like they built a whole town. Like I know the geography of it, but it's outside. Like it's going to rain. We, right. We, like, I mean, we built that town twice because in season three, we decided it was just too far from our stages. So we built it again somewhere else. Wow. And, um, yeah. But, wow. but season three, at least we were in shooting in the dead of winter. Uh, season right. two, we all like I would stand on set with like, you know, one of our actors uh, who who was a bit of an influencer got Canada Goose to give us all coats. And ah. so, we, you know, we had these big Canada Goose coats. I was wearing like a battery operated warming jacket under it. I had battery yes. operated socks that were supposed to keep me warm. <laughs> I was wearing these like four hundred dollar insulated Canadian boots. I forgot what the brand is called, like Baffin, yeah. I think. Baffin maybe. Yeah. And I, I had like everything you could pop. I was wearing tech pants and like long yeah. underwear and everything. And, you know, we're shooting on basically a frozen lake and a forest and you're just out there all day and you just, you freeze. You absolutely this is why you, you don't need the cold yeah. ones. Your metabolism is already at its peak <laughs> because of your time yeah. in the tundra. The, lo the logistics were hard in the snow. Also like the PAs and the crew moving cameras across snow and ice. And yeah, it was right. a lot of that. It must've just taken yeah. like compare. How, what do you think? How much more time do you spend? What's like the, Honestly, what's the like we, increase? I think we did okay. And I don't know how we did, but like looking back on it, like, yeah, we, we didn't have that many more shooting days than any other show I've done. 
Okay. Um, Amazing. Just, you know, I think, I think honestly, the Canadian crews are used to it and they know how right. to move in right. it. They know how to work in it. I love that. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, oh, you're no, a little cold was, there. We're okay. Yeah. 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 No bad weather, just bad clothes. We talked about how, how Denis famously had to, they had to import sand from the UAE to Wadi Rum in Jordan to match the color of the sand, uh, you know, yeah. in the rocky outcroppings there. So <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> they can't just do that in the DI that they have to. Yeah. They have yeah. to actually have the physical sand. They go but for they it. They maybe don't need to, but that's what they. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't around for season one, but I heard um, that you know Francis Lawrence, who directed the first three episodes of season one, um, you know the location people took him to every possible place for something he wanted to shoot, and none of it did he feel was right. And mm. ultimately, he found a place that didn't have a road to it, and right. so uh. they built a road. Yeah, that's what you do, you know, and that's yeah. when you have a feature director who thinks like that, you know, you build right. a road, right? you build a road. Can I, I, I'd forgotten. I meant to ask you because I was surprised. I remember, you know, you had a number of directors that worked on Banshee, but for C, your time there, Anders Engstrom directed 17 out of 24 of all of no, the episodes, like almost no, everyone, no. right? It was, it was 15 out of 16. Right. Yeah. Right. So what happened was I had other directors lined up before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, once mm-hmm. we shut down for five months, uh, the consideration was largely that the only way we're going to be able to finish season two and shoot season three is to shoot them like a movie and not like episodes because we needed to cross board the entire season. Got um, it. The big challenge in season three was that we were going to lose Jason to Aquaman. So we split the season in half where we shot 54 days of all of Jason's scenes. Yeah, and then Jason got wrapped to go do Aquaman. Then we shot every oh, other scene shit. Uh, on the show. So once you're cross boarding the entire show and you're not having episode breaks, I'd either have to have five directors living in Toronto and waking up every right. day saying today's your day, tomorrow's your day. Right? Um, it felt much simpler to me to have one director that was already well liked. Uh, Francis Lawrence, who had created you know the visual visual shooting style of the show, felt good yeah. about Anders. The actors really liked Anders. I met Anders and, and found that I really liked him. And so I said, yeah, let's just do this whole thing. What a That's job, great. though. What a job to do well, yeah, so we did it season. differently. Holy cow. Yeah. So we did some things like Anders and I had to come to certain agreements. Uh, Anders really couldn't spend any time prepping. Like usually in between episodes, the director's prepping right. episodes, right? Mm-hmm. So I essentially had to do Anders prep for him because Anders was mm. on set every day shooting. And then we had these Saturday morning meetings where – uh, we would sort of look at the week's work and we would kind of, you know, update Anders and go through all the scenes. But he had to sort of allow me, which a lot of directors don't like to do, he had to allow me to be the guy who worked with stunts and worked with props and worked with all the, you know, they didn't come to him for approvals. They came to me because he was too busy shooting. We had to form a partnership where where we gave each other a lot of latitude that an episodic director doesn't usually give up and that a showrunner doesn't usually take. Um, Mm. But, you know, we had a really great relationship and so it worked. And, you know, he had an energy level that came from just coming to shoot every day and then going home and going to sleep. He was incredibly disciplined. He never went out to dinner, nothing. And as a result, like whatever stuff had to get done around that, I had to do because he was going to just turn off his phone and go to sleep. Well, that's amazing. Mm. My God. That incredible uh, commitment to the craft. All right. Well, so we are down to our final question, which is Jonathan, who would Tilda Mm. Swinton play in the long kiss? Goodnight. If you had to Mm. recast one role with Tilda Swinton, who would it be? 
<sighs> I, I would love for, for Tilda Swinton to play the Craig Bierko role. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. You know, mm. and uh, it would be great if she and, and Charlie had had a uh, relationship prior yes. to Charlie's amnesia. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it complicates the, uh, complicates the lineage of the daughter. But on the right, other hand, right. you have, you have this, this ex relationship that, that has a lot of weight. And plus you have, you know, Til- I think Tilda Swinton can out crazy Craig Bierko by a mile. And yeah, at the same time, <laughs> she could look really hurt that Charlie doesn't want her back. You know, there could yeah. be this really, I think there could be a really dramatic kind of almost like Shakespearean heft to the whole thing. If she was the big bad. That's, That's great. Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking the Brian Cox character Mm -hmm. um, just because like I think she could even like I was thinking of like she could play it as an old man as she does in Suspiria. But uh, I I really like the Craig Bierko. I really just want to see Tilda Swinton assassin. Uh, I think that would be great. It's hard to believe nobody's done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feels like we need it. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with the president. Oh, good call. It just it wasn't Swinton enough president. of a role. Like, yeah, yeah, but it would become... You can't bring Tilda Swinton to Alberta and then give her two days. <laughs> just a sandwich. <laughs> just sandwich. make a sandwich. Oh, my gosh. Well, we did it, you guys. Jonathan, what do you have to plug? Let's tell the people Let's about, Warrior. about Warrior. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wonderfully in between things to plug except for Warrior, but we just completed a third season of Warrior. Mm, um, amazing. I took a step back in that I, I wasn't the showrunner this season. Um a writing team called Endicott and Stoddard, uh, who had been writers on the show since season one. Mm-hmm. They took over as showrunners because I'm in an overall deal at Apple, so I'm not allowed to technically run oh, the show yeah. for HBO. Got um, it. Apple was really good about letting me write an episode and stay involved as kind of a overseer. But mm-hmm. those two guys, Endicott and Stoddard, came on and, and ran the show, and they, they already had the relationships with all the actors. They already really understood the tone of the show. They were they were like you know part of the show to begin with. So they stepped up, and then we also uh, took Hoon Lee, who's who's been with me forever, um, and who's also a really talented writer. And, and in addition to playing his role on the show, he became a writer on the show as well. Amazing. Um, what, yeah. Who is this guy? What can he do? Yeah, he's uh, and yeah, he he was in the writers' room. He wrote an episode, and he was uh, oh also just another part of the brain trust who would be down in Cape Town with the guys while they were making the show. Does he um, like science fiction and or do he loves uh, science fiction? Loves oh, science great. fiction. Hoon Lee, come on, Dune Pod. When I was watching him, I I just thought like, why is he not in a Dune property? Like, it yeah, he really feels like be. he should be. Uh, yeah. he should be. Yeah, in he's there he's he's really fantastic. And just so folks know, uh, Warrior is set in 1870. San Francisco following uh, Chinese immigrants uh, and the power struggle between them and uh, whites in in San Francisco and and the drug trade and everything like the cops. It's a it's a really great story. Really yeah, based great. on a treatment written by Bruce Lee, and so his daughter mm. Shannon is uh, an executive producer on the show with us. And I will say because I've been involved in post production, I'm actually sitting in the uh, post production warrior office now. Um, the season's fantastic. It, it, you know, we were worried because we were down for almost three years. We had to really yeah. rebuild the show because we, you know, when Cinemax went out of business, when HBO, when Time Warner was sold to AT and T, yeah, uh, three years ago, um, Cinemax went out of business and we couldn't make another season of the show. And then during the pandemic, HBO Max took Warrior off of the Cinemax platform and just put it on the HBO Max platform. Okay. And it was a big hit. And so we got to talking about whether we could pull off a third season. That's and awesome. so we got we got everyone back together. We rebuilt all our sets. Holy and went cow. Back there. And so when you're making the show after a, almost a three-year break, 
you know, I was I was actually nervous about whether or not we'd we'd rediscover the magic we had. And uh, I'm happy to report that the show has come out really fantastic. The fighting is is better than it's ever been. The storylines are great. I, I'm just I'm really thrilled that for the first time when this comes out, we're coming out on HBO Max and we'll have a much bigger that's audience than we did when we of used course, to come out yeah. on Cinemax. Yeah. And it was shot in fantastic. Cape Town, is that right? That's yeah, where we you, should you shot every, it. We naturally went to the one continent that has almost no Asian people. <laughs> I, I think it's also important. I remember when Master of None came out, Aziz Ansari's show, which he co-created with Alan Yang. Yeah. Um, I heard show. Alan Yang in an interview, a tremendous show. Um, but one thing that he stated is that Hollywood never shows Asian characters kissing um, uh. and generally doesn't feature um, Asian yeah. characters. But to me, there's something really important about Warrior having it be led by Asian characters um, and really getting a full experience of them um, as leads. It, it's it's similar to Long Kiss Goodnight. It's important to push back on those boundaries. Yeah. Well, you know, Justin Lin, who's our executive producer, who's, you know, mm. most famous for, you mm. know, all the Fast and Furious movies. Um, but what was super important to him was to take all the tropes of Hong Kong cinema and and the American version of Asian cinema and and turn them on their ear. And, you know, uh-huh. we basically created all our characters as as three-dimensional, you know, full-blooded, flawed, damaged, sexy characters. And um, yeah, so it was really important to us that like, you know, that, you know, the Asian characters aren't the noble heroes, but that they also fuck and they also screw up mm-hmm. and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And to just, you know, really, you know, Justin was really, you know, determined to undo years of of kind of misrepresentation with with yeah. some really solid yep. representation. So he he played a really strong hand in making sure we could do all that. That's amazing. Well, Warrior and Banshee are both streaming now on HBO Max. And so yes. I, ho- I hope folks will check that out and, and have a really great time. See, obviously, still on Apple TV+. And The Long Kiss Goodnight is streaming nowhere. You have to buy it. But it's <laughs> yes. um, but I think you can rent it for like three bucks now. And it's I've always felt it was one of the great underrated gems of the 90s. So I hope people will check it out. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, and yeah. pointing us at it, because I would not have seen it without your uh, without your guidance. Oh, I'm glad. I assumed you guys have seen everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of a certain genre. If it was made if, if it involves computers in the eighties, we've seen it. Beyond <laughs> that, you're you're getting into you're getting into territory that's less less familiar to us. That's right. We're okay. trying. We're trying. Oh my God. I cannot believe that conversation. That was great. He's great. What a guest. I can't believe we got him. I'm always amazed that people come and talk to us at all <laughs> that aren't like blood related uh, or somehow obliged required. to. Yeah, uh, he was great. Super nice. Really fantastic. And, and you know, I, I just want to encourage everybody if I didn't, you know, fanboy enough on it, like, uh, you know, Banshee is such a great show. And for me, having just binged the entire series, it was incredible to get that kind of insight and access to talk through Definitely. that. So like that was really fun for me. And I hope people will check out that show. It is awesome. Indeed. All right, well, what do you think? Should we do some letters? Letters. You can reach out to us anytime, letters at dunepod.com, or Mm -hmm. you can be like Corey, and you can leave us a voicemail at 415-534-5211. Lines are open. Operators are standing by. Reach out and let us know what you think of the pod. Yeah, we have a special balloon that's just stationed permanently over Corey. So he can just speak up to the sky and we hear what he says. But well, people still remember special. that joke. How many crises will we be through by <laughs> the time? Remember the Chinese balloon. 
and then listen to that joke again. Yeah, exactly. All right, here's our first voicemail. That's right, it's silly. <laughs> While Republicans blundered to choose a new speaker 15 times deep into the night, the Chucklers and Jason were nestled in the hut watching the long kiss goodnight. <laughs> Sammy and Gina read Shane Black's words from a script that took too big a bite of every genre that the 90s could muster packed <laughs> into the long kiss goodnight. Yes! Brian Cox hit a Glock next to his cock, and Mr. <laughs> Wally hid it from sight until a pivotal moment when Charlie would grope it and make Daedalus exit stage right. Seems Samuel's character would inspire John Schropper for a TV show he later would write. Before Star wore Stars and Stripes, he stole a star from a copper and became Banshee Pennsylvania's White Knight. Wow. But the hut was in store for Tropper galore watching the Irish and Chinese fight. The show Warrior is Big Trouble Little China meets Gangs of New York and was my personal fave of the night. Tropper's secret weapon from Banshee to Warrior to Sea, be it Wang Chow or Job or a toad without sight. <laughs> you know you could count on the incomparable Hoon Lee to be an absolute fucking delight. <laughs> Lest I hog the airwaves like Jack Burton the trucker, I'll tuck you in and turn out the light. Turn off the podcast and go to sleep, motherfucker, and I'll give you a long kiss goodnight. <laughs> so great. I really need this. I need this. Uh, I need this to play when I go to sleep every night. Now, like this is how. I, this is how I need to like not up. I am from my seat zero position, mm. renewing my call for the silly voicemail compendium episode. I oh. feel feel it must happen. Mm. I don't know. I don't know when is appropriate. I will leave that up to other heads to determine. Okay, but people should be able to hear all of Silly's works. Either that, or we should press it to like a. Vinyl. Wow, that's what I call voicemails CD <laughs> and sell it in the merch store. That's also <laughs> an acceptable. Are those Silly's voicemails? We'll turn it up. Yeah. Exactly. Silly, we love you. Thank you. That was incredible. Thank you, Silly. Incredible. Our second voicemail. Hey, guys. Kev here. Back at you again for the first Kev's question of 2023. The Long Kiss Goodnight came out in 97, and it feels very of the time and the most entertaining possible way. Uh, pretty pretty heavy Tarantino and John Woo inspirations all over the place in this movie, with the extremely ridiculously loud, comically loud action, and this Tarantino kind of everybody's got a witty quip of a certain kind, and Sam Jackson is just plagiarizing his Jules performance in Act 1. <laughs> Kev's question this week in a pivotal early scene, Gina Davis discovers that she has an impeccable skill with knives when she's cutting carrots. Mm. In the background, we hear that fucking dogs and cats singing Christmas Carol CD. Do you remember that? Uh. Kev's first question of 2023, what's the pop cultural thing you're most glad to never have to deal with again? Mm. Thank you guys always. So glad to be back. 2023, let's do it. Huge year. Let's make it happen. Thank you. 
once again, it's Kev's Questions. Hmm. I'm against any sort of uh, structured dancing craze. I was going to say the Macarena. Yeah, like I'm, but like all of them, they come and go. But like you know, like specifically the ones that get like that cross over to like white people. I'm talking about like yeah, the macarena, like swing dancing. Oh God! Like you know, line dancing, like the bakey breaky heart. I'm just all of it. Don't need any of. Don't need any of that. Do you don't think need any of that. was swing dancing like that was the permanent strike against Gen X? Like they're just like you're over. It was that if people answer rem- for your if, crimes. If people had, if people remembered that we did that, it would certainly be a problem. Yeah. But no one remembers that for some. Like John Favreau runs Disney at least for now. Like so, he's <laughs> right. not. He's 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 not been held accountable in any way. Um, and I don't think he would be allowed to run a, a major movie studio if like people remembered that he briefly brought back the cherry pop and daddies or whatever like i don't i don't think that's like i don't think that would have been allowed well we apologize at dune pod we denounce we denounce swing we denounce all all of that yeah i mean i know i have friends in my life and there's probably listeners on this pod there's probably even some people on discord because there's a high nerd swing dancing crossover yes i just want to acknowledge that it's fine if that's not for us into it's I'm not like saying it's you're inherently it's bad or anything like that. Silly says he used to swing dance, of course. Shocking. Uh, Minnesota. And so, and so I it's fine. I'm just saying when it becomes like instead of like a nerd hobby and it becomes like a cultural phenomenon that we're all supposed to have some passing awareness of, that's where I'm glad that it's not a pop culture phenomenon like that anymore. Mm. That's that's my that's my stake. In the spirit of Kev's question. I do love the film swingers though. It's pretty good. I haven't watched it in a while. I still say Vegas, baby, every time I go to Vegas. So How I guess can it, you not? Yeah. How can you not? Doompod. Hey, this is Corey from Austin, Texas, calling in about the long kiss goodnight. 1996, Rennie Harlan, Shane Black, Gina Davis, Sam Jackson. Man, um, so back in the 90s, around this time, so this is 96, I didn't see this in the theater because I was a fucking snob. There was no way I was going to go see some big-budget Rennie Harlan movie at the theater. At this point, I was firmly rooted in my video store nerddom, like reading Film Threat magazine, Psychotronic magazine. If I was watching an action movie, it was probably going to be John Woo or something, you know, something foreign. And something cool, maybe the professional, you know, something like that. And not like just Rennie Harlan nonsense. And this came out, I was surprised. I had to look this up. After Cutthroat Island? I thought he was dead in the water for a little bit. But this mm-hmm. was pretty quick after Cutthroat Island, which was a yeah. huge bomb. And actually, I'd like to revisit. I don't think I've ever <laughs> watched it through. But anyway, back to Long Kiss Goodnight. I did watch it. And it was great. It was a ton of fun. Um, you know, just like like something like Last Boy Scout. It's 90s all the way fucking pedal to the metal explosions and shooting and torture and weird gender race stuff and all I man it's all in here you know it's chain black so uh it was it was a whole lot of fun gina davis is great uh sam is great obviously we all know this uh the the villain whole thing with Timothy and all that, like we, I don't know who would Tilda Swinton play Timothy. Let's get rid of that fucking guy because he was garbage and Tilda's the best. 
She could also play the one-eyed Jack guy, too. She could play all the villains. Even, <laughs> like, what was that dude from that hospital show? Was it David Morse or something like that? She could play that guy, too. Anyway, um, I guess that's about it. I'm really stoked that we are in a new year. What is this, the millionth season of Doom Pod? I'm super stoked. I'm happy. 2023, here we go. Let's do this. Yeah. Hell yeah. Should we do The Last Boy Scout? Uh, I don't know if I've seen The Last Boy Scout. Or any, what about Any Given Sunday? Yeah, that's another one. That Oliver I... Stone, Al Pacino yeah. in 1999, Dennis Quaid, Cameron Diaz. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I missed that one, too. It's uh, two hours and 42 minutes long. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, the answer to that was in the first thing you said about who made it. So, a behind-the-scenes yeah. look at the life and death struggles of modern-day gladiators and those who lead them. Modern-day You know he was, like, so fucking stoked. Hi? Yeah, he was like, they're gladiators. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing you need to understand. <sighs> Oh my God. They're modern day gladiators. It's like the guy with the trident and the net, but he he's a cornerback. <laughs> he's coming from the blind side. God. Uh, all right. Uh, well, we did it, Jason. This episode, yeah. like, uh, this is in the books and it's time for vacation. So, what do you want to plug? What do I want to plug? Um, let me just think for a second. Let me think for a second. I'm going to plug um, Ke- our good friends, Kev and Mackenzie, uh, yes. their pod, uh, Austin Danger Pod. Um, and there have been some interesting overlaps recently, a couple of movies we've done uh, in common. And I really enjoyed uh, being able to listen to someone else talk about a movie that we spent time talking about. Um, and in general, I think if you enjoy this pod, you should check them out. Uh, Kev calls in every week. Mm. Um, he has a beautiful voice. He sounds much better than me. And he uh, he runs a he runs a tight pot over there, so f- folks should folks should check it out. Jason doing succession planning. He's no Bob Iger. Yeah, he's like he's like Kev's seat zero on ADP. Kev's seat one on ADP. And Mackenzie edits. I guess maybe they share. Jason, what do you think about that? I don't know. <laughs> I no, don't know. No I'm comment. not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the succession planning is. If I'm being replaced or I'm replacing you, but in either case. I'm not doing shit. (laughs) Have a great holiday, bud. Yes, you too. And that's it for this very special episode. I want to thank Jason and Jonathan for an amazing conversation. Next week, we welcome back Jonathan's executive producing partner on Banshee and director of Children of Dune and House of the Dragon, Greg Yatanis we tackle one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, streaming now on Peacock. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or just tell your friends about us because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. Dune Pod is a tape deck podcast, John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Transcripts provided by Sophie Shin. The episode was edited by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. <laughs>